0: So I'm sitting here at the lovely garden at the back of the King's Arms again um, and it's uh, the 11th of September at 3.40pm sitting here with Guy Ogilvie and Abdul Ghazar, and we're going to have a conversation about the alchemical symbolism in the Green Knight narrative and anything basically that, that Guy wants to take us into uh, tangentially but probably leading us to the more important aspects that we haven't spoken about yet but i'm going to give this over to guy immediately um, with great gratitude and ask him
1: to take it away
0: which is best if you hold it quite close that's it if you don't mind
1: thank you um where to begin well probably initially to consider the the author himself, we have no idea who he was um, he 's known as the Gawain poet, and he wrote in a um, some middle English dialect which has been tracked down to Northwest England Cheshire or Staffordshire. Uh, but what we do know is that um, he was a highly literary man despite writing in dialect we know from the likes of Chaucer and Dante, that writing in dialect is no indication of a lack of scholarship or learning. Um, And in this case, as with those examples, quite the opposite. Mm. And um, in the course of the tale, um, we get an understanding that he's fully familiar with the whole Arthurian mythos in the sort of troubadour style um, exemplified um, shortly after its conception by Chrétien de Um, He was the first to write about this? He wasn't the first, but he's the first proper author. He's the first person to write about the Holy Grail. Um, And there are various themes which he was the very first to introduce. And he is 12th century. century. He's um, much earlier because um, Gawain was written in the late 14th, sometime between 1370s, 1390s. so it's also difficult to establish the extent to which the Gawain poet had any exposure to alchemy, or any understanding of alchemy. So we have to look for circumstantial evidence. And Chaucer is the best example, because Chaucer is a direct contemporary of the Gawain poet. Really? Yeah. And the Gawain poet would have been very familiar with, um, with Chaucer and his writing, because storytellers find other storytellers, um, writing is um there have never been that many writers around so those who are putting pen to paper and putting together manuscripts and sharing their tales even if they're writing in local vernacular though they will know about each other and chaucer as we know was very familiar with alchemy and we should say that there was um, an alchemy craze going on throughout europe in the 14th century 13th and 14th century mm. um and very much so in England. I mean, shortly after the Galwayne Tale, you'd have kings issuing laws and decrees with regard to the practice of alchemy. Really? Yeah. Um, and as I say with Chaucer, we get from such tales as the Canon's Yeoman's Tale and the Second Nun's Tale, mm. a lot of talk about alchemy. Mm. Most of it rather like Ben Jonson, a couple of centuries later, mm-hmm. um, very derisory and talking about puffers and vain puffers chasing after the Philosopher's Stone. And um, yes, he writes with such a lot of chagrin that scholars have suspected that he himself <laughs> had pursued the art. Um, to what ends? Um, we can only guess. But he um, he reveals in his writings um, a grasp of alchemical terminology, an understanding of alchemical processes, which um, certainly lead me to assume that he had read, for example, the Summa Perfectionis, um, the sum of the perfection of alchemy, which was attributed to Jabir ibn Hayyan,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. 9th century um, alchemist Mm -hmm. in the court of Harun Mm al-Rashid. I believe, and, um, but published in the, or distributed under the name Geber, which is mm. a Latinization of Jabir, mm. um, certainly not written by Jabir because there are references to um, certain things which weren't even known about um, in Jabir's time. But it's full of um, recipes, some quite practical, although there's a lot of the, um, allegorical and symbolic language, so um, so much favored by alchemists. There are recipes for very specific um, alkahests and solvents and things like that, and Chaucer was familiar with them, and I think it is fair to assume that the Gawain poet was similarly aware. Mm-hmm. And with regard to the, um, the Arthurian mythos, as it's transmitted through this troubadour, um, school, well it's not really a school, but this um, this way of, um, movement. this movement, and it really is a movement um, it's a movement that's, that's quite hard to trace in certain respects but as a literary movement, it's, um, it's certainly very much there and has been, by the time the Gawain poet is writing I mean it's already been going for 200 years or so And I've recently established that there is strong indication that the Gawain poet was familiar with um, Wolfram von Eschenbach, Mm. who wrote the great Partzifal, Mm. um, which he wrote in Germany about 140, 150 years earlier. Mm -hmm. And the alchemical symbolism in Partzifal is very obvious. Mm. Um, One doesn't need to project too much from the outside. Um, to discover you, strong alchemical themes.
0: A few, can you give us one or two of those?
1: Well, to give you just one example, the, um, in the story itself, Hartzfal is told of the legend of the Grail by a certain man named Trevrisant, or Trevisrant to be precise. And Trevisrant means thrice Noah threefold wisdom which is a direct um, tipping of the hat to Trismegistus Mm. as in Hermes Trismegistus Mm. who is the um, the author then understood to be the sole legendary almost mythical but certainly real author of the so-called hermetic texts Mm. and some of these hermetic texts were already circulating um, in Europe from the early Middle Ages um, in Latin. Mm. And um, so that allusion in itself mm. to Hermes Trismegistus as the purveyor of the um, of the Grail legend to Parzival is just one indication.
0: Wasn't there also something about um, von Eschenbach, um, something in the story that says that if you ask me where did I get this story yes.
1: from? Yes, Kiot. He invents, well we imagine he's invented this um, man called Chiot, um, who got it not from Chrétien Troy. so this is maybe just a little bit of um, literary posturing. Um, certainly we think um, he is inspired by Chrétien, but on the other hand this chap Kiot says that he got it from um, an, um, an A Muslim astronomer in Toledo called Flegitanus. Now, Flegitanus is clearly a Latinization, but there's been some etymology to suggest that it comes from a Persian word. So I think you all know it, um, Flekhan or something. Flekhan, which means sky.
0: It's probably Old Persian. Or Farakhan.
1: Farak. Anyway. It
0: could be Falak. Falak. Falak, yeah. falak is, the is the is the is the spheres, the, the celestial spheres, the falak. Okay, and then it must be from that. And it's an Arabic word.
1: There, it's sort of Persian Arabic, isn't it?
0: Well, it's Arabic that the Persians have just taken over. Oh,
1: I see. So there
0: is a hadith. Sorry to take you away for a second. No, not at this all. This is interesting. That, um, there's a hadith in which hadith uh, Qudsi, in which which means a holy saying, God speaking uh in the first person through the tongue of the prophet and he says to the prophet lawlak lama aflak were it not for you i would not have created the heavens the swirling spheres and the aflak is the plural of falak ah. so that's probably where the persian i mean that's obviously where the persians got this word from so go ahead
1: Um, So it's interesting there that Wolfram is um, referring to a Muslim source Mm. for the story of the Holy Grail itself, which gives a lot of weight to a growing understanding that the whole troubadour movement is inspired by um, mystical strains of Islam. From the very beginning.
0: Mm.
1: And um, yes, uh, there are other indications. Um,
0: And do any of these work their way through into the Gawain narrative?
1: Well, of course, the green. The green is a consideration. There is, of course, um, Khidr, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Mm. Al Khidr, who is the, um, the so called green man. Um, so dear to the Islamic sort of mythos in a sense Um, who is mentioned in the Quran
0: He's not actually mentioned by name?
1: Not by name, that's right Mm. but he is this character who um, encounters Moses at the meeting of the two waters Mm. Um, and leads him on a strange and riddling path (laughs) where as you remember from the story, he, on one occasion he kills a man, another time he causes a ship to sink and fills Moses with consternation about Mm. these actions and how on earth can you do that? And what finally transpires is the understanding that's transmitted to Moses that one's knowledge can only ever be partial. Mm. So to judge things based on the sheer um, limitation of one's knowledge, is a, um, is a mistake all too easily made. Mm. Of course, in the case of alchemy, <laughs> one that's always impossible to avoid because um, making mistakes mm. is part of the whole story. It's only through making mistakes and recognising one's limitations that one starts to grasp that um, this is a very, very tricky business mm. indeed.
0: So in terms of the story of Sir Gawain and his, his faultlessness. Uh, Does he make a mistake uh, in taking the sash or in not giving, the the, the, what was it that he did the final time that meant that he had to have a gash on his neck? So tell us us that basic part of the story. That part
1: of the story, he is um, subjected to three tests, Mm. um, which itself is one of three tests. there he is at the castle, where suddenly everything goes from green to red. Mm. And um, his host wants to go off hunting, but he says, you've had a terribly long journey. You stay, you stay home and you entertain the women. And the women all go, "Ah, oh, marvellous, Gawain, we've heard all about you. And you're the great seductress and you're the great t- teller of love. And this puts us actually in a very much a French uh, chivalric. Um, context Um, and he is visited early that morning uh, when he first awakes and his host has gone off and he has made a deal with the host that his host will give him whatever they manage to catch on the hunt so long as he will give to his host uh, whatever he has gained that day and he is visited in his chamber by this the beautiful Chatelaine of the castle, who is said to be more beautiful than Guinevere herself,
0: Mm.
1: and Guinevere is considered to be the most beautiful. So she is very, very alluring, Mm. very desirable, and she is quite seductive, Uh, and she's insisting that if Gawain is really the great Gawain, then he must be um, more forthcoming in the way that he engages with her. She makes it quite clear to him that she's happy to go all the way with him. Now he's in a tricky situation because he set himself up, and this whole story is full of setups and tricks all the way through, Uh, but he sets off with his shield that has Mary on the inside, the Blessed Virgin Mary as his protectress on the inside, but in the outside um, blazoned on the red shield is the pentagram. Mm-hmm. And the pentagram is traced in red gold. And red gold is gold that um, has a strong alloy of copper.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And copper is the metal of Venus. And the pentagram, although the poet doesn't mention it, he goes a great length to say what the, uh, what the pentagram represents symbolically. But it represents Venus. Mm-hmm and it represents Venus in particular ways. Mm. Now the pink color of copper is one of the colors of Venus Mm. and green is her other color. Mm. Now there are many reasons for this. One of the main, most prosaic reasons is that when they first discovered copper and they were smelting it from its ore, the ore that they were using most, and in fact the greatest indication of the presence of copper was green because the rust the oxide of copper is green and okay. malachite was one of the main sources for um, for copper. So directly associated with Venus is the color green as well as the color pink and the color pink goes with roses and goes with love. Venus of course is Aphrodite, she's the goddess of love um, and she's also in certain respects um, the goddess of nature because her numbers are number five mm. and the number five plays out very much in the way nature is patterned. Um, it's connected to um, the Golden Ratio and the Fibonacci Spiral. Um, that um, can be traced out through the pentagram and without going into too much detail about that, this is all inherent. Now it's very hard to say the extent to which the Gawain poet knew specifically about these correspondences with Venus, but certainly for us We can see that there he goes off with his shield, um, heralding Venus on the one hand, and goes to, ends up in this court in his quest to find the green knight, and finds that he has been classified as the great seducer, and if he really is the great Gawain that he's supposed to be, um, then he will be um, more skilled and more forthcoming in the ways of love. But he resists those challenges, but he's got a tricky game to play. On the one hand, the code of chivalry says that the lady is always right. You always defer to the lady. Mm. Um, And on the other hand, she's married. She is the wife of his host. Mm. So he must be very careful not to overstep the mark. As an unmarried um, knight, Arthurian knight, uh, the chivalric code requires that he is chaste mm. and having um, the Blessed Virgin Mary on the inside of his shield um, is an honouring of that. Mm. Also, the poet specifically says that Mary protects him. If it hadn't been for mm. Mary, mm. then he would have caved in. So on the first night, he settles for one kiss and he gives his host the kiss and the host says, ah, where did you gain that? He said, well, that wasn't part of the bargain to tell you how I came <laughs> <laughs> by this thing. So the host laughs it off, says, fine. The second night, she tries to make him to take um, a gold ring. He refuses the gold ring, um, but has to give her two kisses. On the third night...
0: And he gives those...
1: And he gives those kisses. kisses to his host. who goes, aha, well done. Um, on the third night, she plays her trump card in terms of temptation. He manages to resist her overtly sexual advances, but she insists that she take that he takes from her a boon a present and this is her girdle mm. and she says this girdle will protect you anyone wearing this girdle cannot be killed he knows the next day he's got to go off and find the green knight and he's going to receive a blow mm. which in, in any circumstances will be mortal mm. so he's Tell us what kind of, of is, Guy. Well a girdle is something a lady wraps around her middle. Mm. It was sometimes used specifically as a um, symbol of chastity. Uh It could also be worn um, in a way that would protect a woman's chastity, but as an item of clothing it's very intimate. It's very intimate, indeed. So when um, it
0: goes just round the waist,
1: it goes round the waist. It goes round the and middle, under the clothing, under the clothing. I mean, it's 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 not necessarily a belt. Mm. It's usually um, under the clothing. So it's an intimate it's, garment. Is a
0: ceremonial, almost?
1: It is a. It's not functional. No, but it's it's got strong token meanings, such as well. It is, it's in a, it is in a sense that which holds the feminine together, that which girdles the woman. And it's around her waist. It's around her, her womb area. Mm. Um, and it is associated with chastity. And in this particular garment is braided. Mm-hmm. And is braided in green silk. So green again, is braided in green silk with gold. And here we have another, um, we have a symbolism here, because anything which is plaited or braided um, implies three, because you cannot plait or braid without three strands. You can plait with more, but basically um, you've got the three. And a key alchemical um, understanding are three principles, the tria prima are the three principles exemplified by mercury, sulfur and salt or um, soul, spirit and body. But again with the green and the gold we have this theme going through right from the start from the green knight appearing um, in Arthur's court and Arthur is very solar, he is, he is a sort of sun king and his round table, twelve knights sit at the round table and twelve obviously a symbol of the um, 12 months of the year, the 12 signs of the zodiac and he is um, he's a very solar king and of course the sun, the key symbol for the sun is gold and the only colours which are mentioned throughout the whole tale is a lot of green, 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 green and even the horse is a gringole. Mm. He says that is not invented by um, the Gawain poet. He crops up in all kinds of um, French Arthurian legends. It's, he is—he's a, a famous horse. He's a well-established horse. And what but, does it mean? The word. Well, you? actually, it's very interesting. Um, I've tracked it down to a very obscure heraldic term, which was in usage at the time in um, French heraldry, specifically and it's usually used as um, the past participle, okay. gringolet, and it refers to a heraldic device. If something is gringolet that means it has a serpent's head mm-hmm. attached to it. Oh. So he is basically riding a horse with a serpent's head. Mm. He is being led by the serpent. The color associated with serpents is also green mm. and in alchemy the serpent um, symbolizes the Prima Materia. Mm. And the Prima Materia is two things, there's many things. Tracking down exactly what it is is the hardest thing that an alchemist has to do because if he wants to elaborate the great work in pursuit of the Philosopher's Stone, first of all he must identify what the Prima Materia is. Mm. Symbolically, It is the substance, the chaotic substance in the darkness that is moved by the Word, the Word of God moving on the chaotic waters of the deep. So in a sense it is the matrix, it is the matrix material from which we have materia itself. It is the very matter of creation that is given form and direction by the the Word of God, and of course the word of God is the fiat lux, which creates the light. So it's the action of golden light on the um, prima materia, which is associated with green. So you have this thing of the movement in alchemy from green to gold, and you have this movement um, from green to gold um, throughout the green knight's tale. So you have the Green Knight coming. He's challenging the Golden Court, the Solar Court of Arthur. Um, but the Solar Court of Arthur is also quite green in the sense of immature, because the Gawain po- poet says that um, Arthur is still very young, and the Green Knight taunts them and says, "Oh, you're all beardless boys." <laughs> and Gawain himself, despite the fact he arrives at the at the castle, where, of the castle of temptation. Um, to find that there's a legend all about him and this is the poet having fun with all the legends but claiming Gawain as his end so we have the very start of Gawain's story and then he encounters, (laughs) encounters his mirror reflection where all his legends are reflected back on him but he is said to be very green he insists that he should be the man who takes up the challenge the knight who takes up the challenge that the green knight has set because he is the greenest Mm. he is the least experienced and his loss Mm. would be the least damaging Mm. to Arthur's court and suggests the only reason he's a knight at all is because he's Arthur's nephew. Uh. So there is this greenness there Mm. inherent in the Arthurian court because it hasn't yet reached its full maturity and it has been challenged by the green knight to see if actually they can um, passed the test, mm. and it is his great foe Morgana, who is the old woman who Gawain encounters in the castle of temptation, who has created this whole trickery.
0: Morgana is the wife,
1: she's no, she's the old woman. So old when, when he arrives at the castle of, I'm calling it the castle of temptation. <laughs> <Right>. mm.
0: <laughs> um, uh, yeah, tell us, I forget that part of the story.
1: When he arrives, he is, well re- he is very um, graciously received. And um, the Chatelaine's companion is this old lady, oh. who despite being described as really quite ugly and large-buttocked, um, in fact the Gawain poet is rather rude in his physical description <laughs> of this woman, <laughs> nevertheless makes it clear that she is <clears throat> held in the greatest reverence. and. Um, Going of course, treats her with the greatest reverence, and quite right too. Um, this is all part of the glamour that has been cast by Morgana, and the very fact that the Chatelaine of the castle is said to be even more um, beautiful than Guinevere herself. At the very end, when the deceit is all, they come clean, and the green knight, turns back into the host of the castle of um, Oudezer, Castle of Temptation. He says, yes, don't worry, you've passed the test. Um, but this was all set up by Morgana, mm. Morgan the fa- Faye, Morgan the fairy. And of course the colour color of the fairy folk is green as well. And it's the colour of the Celtic peoples. Mm. And the Gawain poet is definitely associating this legend, this particular um, story, with the old people, with the, with the Celts. Um, and there's even an allusion to that with one of the three hunts. Because on the second day, um, the Lord of the Castle goes off and they have this fearsome hunt where they encounter this enormous wild boar who actually manages to kill many of the hounds and maim several of the beaters. And, several of the people hunting this great beast who is finally dispatched with some courage by the lord of the castle. And there's a chance that 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 within that is a symbolic telling of something that René Guénon refers to in the symbolism of the wild boar, because he says the wild boar was the symbol of Druidic Britain. And that actually Britain might even derive its name from the root word for Boar, the people of the Boar. And he says the great bear, the constellation of the great bear was previously the constellation of the great Boar. And in that context, Arthur, who of course is Arcturus, which is bear in Greek, there's a sense in which um, there's been a usurpation and that the christianized Arthurian court represents a usurpation of the ancient wisdom tradition of the British Isles, Mm. symbolized by the Mm. boar, And that's a possibility. There's also some interesting wordplay that comes up, which also alludes back to some of those ideas. Right at the start and right at the end of the story, um, the poet tells us, he puts us in our context. Here we are in Britain, which was founded by um, Brutus, who was one of the people who escaped from Troy with Aeneas and usually said to be his nephew or his grandnephew. And at the end, again, this he again refers to Brutus of Troy. So you've got Troy at the beginning, Troy at the end. Chrétien de Troyes, who is Chrétien of Troy, mm. um, is the great inspiration for the whole um, troubadour movement and the writing down of the Ar- Arthurian mythos in this chivalric sort of code. Mm. And Troy is related to ants because the Troy ounce, as a unit for weighing uh, metals, precious metals, the Troy ounce is still used today and it comes from Troy and that actual term was already in circulation in Britain by the end of the 14th century. Mm. So we have, just by going Troy at the beginning, Troy at the end, Um, we have an allusion to Troy, the the story itself um, alludes to Chrétien, of Troy. Mm. And Amazing. the root tre um, goes back in sort of proto um, Indo European language to things like tree, which is where druid comes from mm. as well. Mm. It goes right back to the root word for, uh, for tree, mm. um, or dru, or tre. Um, and the tree was depicted. As a stem with two branches, so it's it's three. it's a three. Mm. Troy, of course, is trois. That's mm. three as well. Mm. Again, we're alluding to the tria prima, the three um, principles upon which alchemy is founded. And um, you can play with mm. the words around that particular root till the cows come home. And of course, the word troubadour itself Mm. is related to that. So that comes from an old Occitan word "trobar," which means to find but also to find in terms of to seek on the one hand and discover on the other hand and also it suggests to invent. It also suggests um, to, um, to create but within that are also allusions to truth so tre, Troy, and troth. Now the reason we, the whole story is pledged around um, Gawain's troth, which is also known in an Old English as tro. I pledge my tro. I pledge my tro that I will fulfil. So he's pledged his troth his Troy, that he will also, that he will fulfill the bargain, mm. present himself for de- certain decapitation mm. at the end of a year and a day, mm. which is of course a full solar round, it's a solar return. Mm. So there you have the sense of sun and gold as well, this playing around. Um,
0: now go back to the, the uh, uh, you use the word usurpation, go back to that idea that the, the Christianized court that somehow usurped the Celtic. Well, the this is. Spirituality. I mean, uh, some people
1: interpret this this the whole story um, as as very Christian, as a rather sort of um, cross Christian telling off of the the sort of womanizing that started to be associated with um, troubadours, mm. anyone who picked up a lyre and started singing. That was the great best way to get to a lady's girdle. <laughs> <laughs> Um, But I think, actually, he is positioning, he is taking things back to the beginning, to a young Arthurian court, to the very first quest of Gawain. But he's playing with that because when he arrives at the Castle of the Temptation, that's all very French. That's all very flirtatious. It's playing around with the chivalry thing as a sort of courting ritual that goes on between men and women. And he is suggesting no, there's something much deeper and more profound and earthy and more primordial going on. And I think the imagery that he's using, the symbolism that he's using, and if we can read into the Boar story and association, with an older, um, an older symbolism, an older Celtic past, then he is trying to reposition the whole chivalric quest in a more fundamentally um, primordial sort of way. I'd use the word spiritual, but that's a problematic word mm. in many ways. You know,
0: primordial is, seems to be more appropriate to what, yeah. you're, what you're saying. Um, and it's a synthesis between the ancient and what was then modern, the new Christian way of expressing those ancient spiritual primordial yeah. truths. Yeah. So the end result is not so
1: much a usurpation of
0: one. Oh no, you didn't say that the, the story was hinting at a usurpation.
1: It's potentially hinting at a usurpation, but on the other hand um, one of the great um, even for somebody who is um, deeply immersed in a, in a Celtic understanding, a pre-Christian understanding, <laughs> nevertheless, there are great compensations for the Christian understanding. The reverence for the Blessed Virgin is, is clearly sincere. Mm. It's clearly profound. Mm. And again, with the three, there is that trinity. Um, right at the heart of the Catholic understanding, of, um, um, of Christian understanding of the divine dispensation, that plays out to the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. And as principles they can be equated with the Tria Prima um, of alchemy as well. Mm. So I agree with you, I think this is, it's, he's playing with all these things, he's stirring the pot. In a playful way, but he's also suggesting that there are deeper roots to all this.
0: Um, There's a story um, that um, the Blessed Virgin is depicted somewhere, I forget where, that she is depicted actually treading on the neck of the green man. I think it may even be in a cathedral. Um, have you heard of that?
1: Well, of course we know about the how treading on the head of the snake. Yes, but this is the... the crushing green, of the head of
0: the... Um, of the green man, of the of the green man who figures in so much of these, uh, the art on, in, the arch- in the cathedrals around Britain. In a positive way, you often see the green man here yeah. and there. But this is apparently a story of her trampling on the neck of the green man. You haven't come across that.
1: I haven't come across that, but that's very interesting. I mean, the green man, um, he goes way, way back. I mean, he's, you have an equivalent to a degree in Dionysus in Greek mythology, Really, the idea that there is this um, sonic, spirit of nature itself Mm. which is this unstoppable green force Mm. that comes up in spring and it's writhing and it's erupting and it is going through that whole mortal thing of bursting through the seed um, growing in all its greenery clambering up going through the whole cycle Mm. of producing the flower and eventually turning gold as it dies at the, end of the, mm. at the end of the summer, and then dropping its seed, which is then swallowed up by the dark earth, that then goes through the winter mm. and starts again. And of course, these, these themes of nature, that aspect of nature and these cycles, is also very much at play mm. in the Gawain tale.
0: Brilliant. Now, I have a question. Um, people don't seem to know how it was that St. Patrick Converted the Irish in this in this miraculous way. I just know that this one man seems to be responsible for huge numbers of these uh, Irish Celtic tribes converting en masse to Christianity. Could we see in the Green Knight narrative a kind of symbolic working through of what it was that that St Patrick may have? what what kind of victory it was that St. Patrick achieved by looking at Sir Gawain's victory in the tests but also in respect, particularly in respect of his willingness to die. That he went to fulfil his troth, his tro, and he was prepared fully to die. And that that preparedness to die and to resist the temptations that come along the way could one see that it was the very fact of the totality of his preparedness to die that gave him the strength to resist the seductions and that was where he got his strength from and that was the strength that the green knight was actually teaching sir Gawain yes be prepared to die be prepared to he who will lose his life shall save it yes could that therefore be a kind of a christian interpretation does that work for you that it's the gr- the green knight is everything about primordial spirituality that is apparently being taken over by christianity but can they really go all the way and absorb the fullness of the death that is the counterpart of this profusion of life symbolized by green yeah can you go all the way and actually lose your life for the sake of the truth so the green knight is bringing out, as you say, the potential gold in the green, but also perhaps showing that Jesus Christ really has vanquished all of the, the nature gods in their lower aspect that are now relegated to demonic status because they're opposing the Christian revelation. And that this knight, someone who's true to the Christian faith, will actually show that we have everything that you have in your religion and more, and all of your gods are now incorporated in their positive mode into life, into eternity, but in their negative mode of, let's say, implicit resistance to the new word that God has freshly minted through Christ, that in so far as they oppose any of that, they become demonic as opposed to angelic. Is that a possible alchemical interpretation?
1: Yes. I've, the green man, I mean, to go back to the, the virgins crushing the mm. head of the green man. Mm. The new dispensation that was brought by Christianity It's talking about eternal life. It's harking back to the sort of Sanatana, sanatana, dharma, sanatana dharma understanding exactly. that actually the mortal coil, and the mortal coil is represented by the green man, it's represented by the, the writhing green serpentine vine that springs up, which Dionysus is associated with. It's rather like the, the switch from the Dionysian cult to the Orphic cult, and that understanding no, of ex- immortality.
0: You have to explain that.
1: Okay, Dionysus, in the, um, in the Greek mythos, he was always a, although he's one of the Olympian gods of Parnassus, he's always presented as exotic. He's always from elsewhere. And there are literally hundreds of different places that um, Dionysus is said to come from. He's meant to be the god of wine, And so he's represented by the vine and he's very much a a chthonic deity. Um, What deity? Chthonic, which means of the earth, subterranean, below the soil. So he represents that which is held by the dark earth and erupts in the spring and starts writhing through. And being being the, the god of the vine, he is a god of intoxication. And when you look at the Dionysian... I was wondering where that wave of intoxication came from, that made me shudder just now. <laughs> so he's a god of intoxication. He's a god of intoxication. And what he offers people is the opportunity to lose yourself in the, with the god. It's ecstasis. So ecstasy is ecstasis. It means being beside oneself. So if you go into, if you join the dance, the Dionysia, Dionysiac dance, right. um, and be, dance with the Menads and the Corbantes, and actually if you look at the old um, Greek um, pottery, the classic black, um, black and um, red pottery, you've got these Dionysian dancers, Korribantes, and the way they're dancing with their head thrown back is exactly the way the followers of Vodun, in Haiti, what we used to call voodoo, the way they dance, And what's happening in Vodun? They are getting themselves into a trance through the dance and the drumming so that they can be empty of themselves, beside themselves and allow the lower, the deity of their choice or the deity who has chosen them, Mm. to inhabit them. And then they are in a state of enthusiasm. And enthusiasm means to be literally mounted By the god. Enthusiasmos means entered by the deity. Fear, yeah. So you have this thing of losing yourself. Mounted?
0: In the physical sense?
1: Yeah. Really? Mm. It's not
0: just a kind of subtle penetration.
1: No, it means mounted.
0: It actually means... Mounted. Really.
1: And interestingly there you have um, Gawain mounted upon Grangele, uh, or Gringolet, as he might have been called up there up north at the time, Gringolet, he's on his Gringolet um, who is the serpent headed horse and of course the horse represents the lower nature and the rider represents the higher nature so um, the higher nature here being the god Dionysus but to, the Orphic change is when um, Orpheus is supposed to have been the high priest of Dionysus, but when he becomes the cult master, he um, he has that descent into the underworld to find his lost beloved, as we know from the accounts of people like Virgil and Ovid. Um, but actually, there was a a real um, historical Um, although rather hazy um, tradition, the Orphic tradition, which is very similar to the Pythagorean tradition, and there is this understanding of eternal life. So Dionysus is all about the living and dying, the being in this mortal coil, this unstoppable wheel of living and dying and coming into being and everything, which goes on and on and on, which actually... Those who have started to tire of this wheel of life might wish to escape escape from. from. Mm. And the escape is offered by that gift of eternal life in the golden glory of that which is the giver of life in the first place. And this ties all the great traditions together. That is
0: fascinating.
1: But to get back to the Celts, what the Greeks used to write about the Celts, the various early, earliest writing about the Celts comes from the Greeks. And the Celts were showing up in um, Thrace, and northern, um, northern Greece and Thrace. They were coming through, which is where um, Dionysus was said to have come from, and where Orpheus was said to have come from. He's said to have come down through. Um, And it seems to be that there's a connection between the Celts of the time of pre-Pythagoras, so we're talking about 9th, 8th, 7th century BC, that these Celts were tapping into exactly the same initiatic traditions mm. that we're going to go on and color the Greek understanding so much through Orpheus, through Pythagoras, through Pythagoras to the likes of Parmenides, Empedocles, who's the godfather of alchemy, who's the first one to talk about the four elements as four deities and gives us the clue as to the secret fire and where the elemental fire really comes from and then through to Plato and then the whole dispensation of the Greek philosophical tradition, which is then absorbed um, by Islam. And then we have the dispensation from Islam through the Moorish tradition and the translating of Arabic texts, original Arabic texts, and Arabic translations of original Greek texts, which themselves are harking back to primordial traditions, going back to time immemorial um, in Europe and and Iran, and um, in India. All these things are talking about similar things, but what they're saying about the Celts, the Greeks, is that they are absolutely fearless. They have no fear of death whatsoever. And why? Because they know that immortal life is a complete given if you are prepared to give yourself away entirely for a higher truth, whether that be for the sake of the tribe, the survival of the tribe, the honour of the tribe, if you give yourself away entirely in truth, then nothing can touch you.
0: Wow, that's astonishing, thank you very much. Thank you. I think that's a a really good place to (laughs) stop.